Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Technically, we are beginning at chapter 54 of Isaiah as we continue going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through Isaiah. But you don't necessarily need to start there. In fact, eventually we're going to end up in John 11. But in order to kind of get the point that I'm going to start making at the beginning of this evening, we need a whole lot of background. I mean, like the whole Bible. I'm going to try to give you an overview of the Old and New Testament so that you can understand what Isaiah is doing in this particular section on the suffering servant. Because we know that just prior to Isaiah 53, what we saw were constant promises of the restoration of Israel and a glorious future for Israel. And then chapter 53 and portions of chapter 52 describe the suffering servant And then chapter 54 goes right back to the theme of restoration, growth, increase for Israel. And it'd be easy at that moment to say, yes, but that's Isaiah, that's one book, that's the Old Testament. I'm going to show you that that is thematic to the whole Bible. Because that is the story of the Bible. So if we begin at the very beginning, we'd have to go back to Adam and Eve in the garden and recognize that God, who gave them only one rule against their complete freedom of choice and movement, he gave them one command that they would not touch or eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, oftentimes, theologically, we concentrate on the fact that Eve first then tempted her husband, Adam, and that they rebelled by eating the fruit from that tree. What I'd like to emphasize is that God in his sovereignty put the tree in the garden. He could have just left the tree out of the garden, and then that never occurs. What we need to remember is that God at all times, in all places, in all of history, in everything that we read in the Bible, God is always in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And so he was bringing about a situation that would redound to his own glory, to his own grace, to his own loving kindness. And that's why he not only put the tree in the garden, but then allowed the tempter in the garden. Now, this is the same God who we read in the book of Revelation is going to put the devil not only into a pit, but into a lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, going to lock him away forever, going to drive him away from heaven, put him in the eternity that is designed for him. God could have done that the moment that Satan fell from heaven. The minute that Satan rebelled, the first sin found in him, God could have immediately put him in the lake of fire. But he didn't. Instead, he let him go into the garden where the man and the woman were and where the temptation was. So God not only provided the temptation, he provided the tempter. And then he let 
Satan have a conversation with Eve. After the conversation, after the fall, we read that God put enmity between the serpent and the woman. So he can do that. Why did he do that before the conversation? If he didn't want that to happen, why didn't he put the enmity between them to start with? Because everything that occurred in the garden occurred exactly as God determined it was going to occur. So that there would be sinful people who desperately needed actual saving. Totally depraved people who needed a savior who could completely save. And so Adam's sin, as our federal head, his sin was then passed on to every human being. And the next thing we read in the book of Genesis is that God looked down from heaven at men and every thought and every intention of their heart was only wickedness constantly. Proof that Adam's sin was on all human beings as they continued to rebel against God. God brings about the flood, destroys everybody, save eight people. Why? Because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then the book of Genesis opens up once we get to Abraham. And we read about the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. Abraham was asleep when God formed the covenant. God passed through the animals. Smoking furnace, pillar of fire, goes through. Since he couldn't find anything greater than himself to swear on, he swore on himself that he was going to do these things for Abraham, and it included promises of a land that was going to be theirs in perpetuity, but it also included a promise that through his seed, through his progeny, all the people of the earth were going to be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And then Abraham has sons who have sons. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they become the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. We have traced that out several times here through the years to demonstrate who the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant are, and it's Israel. So now you've got these people who are walking around on the planet, 12 tribes of people who are walking around with a promise from God, an unconditional promise from God, that he is going to give them this glorious future, and through them, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, and they are going to have this land, a great land in perpetuity, a land much bigger than Israel has ever actually occupied. Current Israel over there in the Middle East today is not everything God has promised them. In fact, the promise that he made to Abraham took him all the way down to the Nile in Egypt and all the way out to the Euphrates, which is now Iraq. And so God was preparing that eventually there's going to be this tremendous growth within Israel. So you've got these people who have this promise. And what does God do to them? Well, he gives them a temptation, just like he did in the garden. He gives them a law that he knows going in, they're not going to perform. Mm. Moses even tells them, now when you don't do it, God's going to punish you, and he's going to drive you out of your land. And the very things that he promised you in perpetuity, that he promised you unconditionally, he's going to take those things away from you. And so then, through the Old Testament, we read about the rebellion of Israel and how God took the northern tribes into the Assyrian captivity, which they have not returned from yet. Judah, he kept intact up until Jesus came, because it was necessary that the tribe of Judah, through whom Shiloh was coming, 
They had to remain in Jerusalem. Jesus comes, 70 AD comes around, he scatters them again. Okay, so what's my point? Here's the dilemma that God has put himself in. He's got a people group who have unconditional promises of restoration and a glorious future to come. He's got an unconditional promise that he has given those people, but he has also given them a law that can do nothing but make them guilty. So now he's got all these guilty, rebellious people running around with promises that he has made to them. How is he going to not punish them for their guilt between his holy, righteous standard? What's he going to do? Well, that's why Isaiah 53 exists. That's why we read up until Isaiah 53 about the guilt of Israel and why Isaiah began by saying, God is going to draw Jerusalem out. He's going to take you into the Babylonian captivity. And then in the lifetime of Isaiah, that actually occurred. And so he and Jeremiah are prophesying to the southern kingdom, to Judah, to Jerusalem. And God has taken them into the Babylonian captivity. And Isaiah is promising them, look, the promises that God made you are still good. There's still going to be a restoration. There's still going to be a glorious future. God has not forgotten the promise that he made to Abraham. However, because you're so guilty, he is now going to punish you. But he's not going to divorce you. He's not going to put you away entirely, but he's going to punish you. Yeah, but in order to really satisfy everything that he has promised them, there needs to be more than just God winking at their sin God can't just look away from it and say, oh, you tried. Because the standard he has laid out is righteousness. Be holy because I'm holy. So what does God do? Isaiah predicts God is going to send a Messiah. And then says astounding things. We're just so used to it. We've read it for all our church lives that we look back at it and say, right, Jesus Right, he was the one who died to forgive sin. But think about the astounding declaration that is made to Israel in particular. Isaiah is the prophet to Israel, and he says the Messiah sure enough is going to come. That one that all the way back to Jacob, Jacob promised that it was going to be through the tribe of Judah in particular that Messiah the new lawgiver was going to come and that the gathering of the nations was going to be to him. And then Isaiah picks it up and says, he is going to come, but he is also going to die. And we are sick as a nation. So God is going to place our sickness on him. And we have transgressed and we have rebelled and we are at enmity with God. So God is taking all our trespasses and placing them on him. And therefore, we're going to be able to stand before God spotless and unblemished and blameless because of everything he did. But he did it, according to Isaiah, just like the whole rest of Isaiah, he did it for Israel. And the language just couldn't be any more clear, especially as we've been reading through the book of Isaiah. We've seen very clearly that that's what happens, that Messiah is sent to heal Israel because they're the people who have the unconditional promise, and they're the ones who the prophets keep saying, you have this glorious future. But they're also in a state of rebellion, and so God devised a plan, a glorious scheme, 
by which he was going to forgive them by punishing a substitute in their place. Now, people hear that and say, yeah, but that was Old Testament. Sure, Jeremiah, in the declaration of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, sure, that new covenant is promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That language is very clear. Sure, but that was the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, it's different. Now God is just dealing with the church exclusively, and he's given up on those promises he made to Israel. In fact, those were all types and shadows that all pointed to not just Christ himself, but to the church, except that when you get to the New Testament, that exact same schema, that exact same plan is left in place. That God sent his son for the good of Israel, and we, by grace, get to be part of the salvation that Israel's Messiah has accomplished. We Gentiles, we the church, don't supersede Israel. We don't push them out of the way. And Old Testament or New, the exact same story is told. That's why I said we're going to start this morning, this morning. That's why I said we're going to start this evening. Look, I just took a nap. It was morning to me. We're going to start in John chapter 11. I'm going to start reading at verse 47. The first 46 verses are about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 45 says, Many therefore of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what Jesus had done believed in Jesus. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, what are we going to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Okay, their vested interest at this moment is that they are the rulers in Israel. And we know from Jesus' own lips that they are whitewashed sepulchers. They are a den of vipers. They have utilized their position and the temple, which Jesus called a den of thieves, in order to exercise their authority and their power over Israel and to make themselves the important ones, the spiritual ones. When they gave, they blew trumpets. When they made prayers, they made them on street corners to be seen by men. Jesus denounced these people for the way that they were acting, and they have a vested interest in keeping people from turning to Jesus because Jesus is the one who said that they were whitewashed sepulchers. They've got to get rid of him, and they've got to stop that preachment, or they're out of a job. Plus, they say, the Romans are going to come and take away both our place our land, where we are right now, and our nation. What nation are they talking about? Israel. Israel. We've got to be careful here because if it goes on like this and people start saying that this Jesus is God, that undermines the notion that Caesar is God. Mm. And Caesar worship is in full swing at this point when Jesus is on the planet. And people are saying... Jesus is God, not Caesar. 
And Jesus is making things even worse by saying things like, when they asked him, should you pay taxes? He says, give me a coin. Whose inscription is on the coin? They say Caesar's. He says, okay, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Essentially saying, Caesar's not God. Don't worship Caesar, worship God. Okay, so they understand politically the importance of getting rid of Jesus and his teaching. The Romans are going to come and they're going to take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. And then John takes the time to comment on that moment and says, now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Who's Jesus going to die for? Israel. Israel, the nation. The exact same thing that Isaiah said. And then the Holy Spirit uses Caiaphas of all people, the man who is out to kill Jesus, to speak prophetically that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And as we're going to see when we get to Isaiah 55, after establishing that Jesus has died specifically for Israel, then we're going to get to, ho, oh, everyone who thirsteth, come ye to the waters. You that have no money, come ye buy and drink. And Isaiah starts casting the door open to the Gentile nations for the healing of the nations. But first to Israel, then to the Gentiles. Same thing here. Caiaphas said this, being high priest that year, and he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Not only does that mean all 12 tribes, the scattered tribes and not just those in Jerusalem, but I think it's also saying to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. How did Paul go about preaching? After the death of Jesus on the cross, he always went to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. He even said it. He said the gospel is given to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Okay, so my point is, which I am overly belaboring in the hopes that you'll see the details here, because this is the story of the Bible. The scheme that Isaiah lays out, that there are promises to Israel that God has made unconditionally, which God has to accomplish, that is part of the whole reason why the Messiah came to the planet and why he died. He died with our transgressions on him. Isaiah would use the pronouns us and our because he was a prophet to Jerusalem. He was a prophet to Israel. And so through his stripes, we are healed. And that's the same scheme that's carried into the New Testament, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So the people who say, yes, well, that's an Old Testament idea, 
The regathering of Israel because of Jesus is also an important New Testament idea. This is the same Jesus, after all, who said to his disciples, when I sit on my glorious throne, the 12 of you are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Because Jesus said the same thing Isaiah said. Isaiah and Jesus do not contradict each other. The Old Testament and the New Testament do not contradict each other. You can't play one of them against the other. Then you get to the book of Revelation and you see new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, which has 12 gates over which are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And tonight in Isaiah, we're going to see yet again a description of the new Jerusalem that is accomplished in the book of Revelation. You see how it all ties together? Mm -hmm. Are you making the connections? Because the Bible has one author, and that one author does not contradict himself. And by the way, Jeremiah 31 is the prediction of a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. A Hebrew in the New Testament writing to Hebrews in Hebrews 8 quotes that promise verbatim to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. How obvious is that? So I would contend that the people who want to replace Israel with the church are ignoring very large portions of what the Bible actually does say. And my contention from day one is whatever the Bible says, that's what we have to agree with whether it fully matches the theology that we carried to the Bible, we have to adjust our thinking and adjust our theology according to what the Bible actually does say. And it says Israel from Genesis to Revelation. And we can't escape it. That was all introduction to Isaiah 54. Turn there. And you know the rule. And you know I've had a nap. So, look out. <laughs> I know I did this last week, but I'm going to do it again this week. Starting in Isaiah 52, the very first verse, Awake, awake, clothe yourself with strength, O Zion. Zion is a nickname for Jerusalem. O captive daughter of Zion, says verse 3. Thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you're going to be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down the first time into Egypt. Now we know exactly what people group he's talking about. Mm -hmm. They went there to reside. And then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Okay, those are the northern ten tribes. Now we know precisely what people group he's talking about. Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. And again the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all the day long. Okay, here's another element of it. God in his holy righteousness, in his supremacy, in his sovereignty, sees the people who he utilized to punish his people Israel. He sees the way that they, in their haughtiness, are hissing and howling at his people and therefore blaspheming his name as if he wasn't able to protect his own people. And so his own reputation is being besmirched by sinful earth dwellers. 
And that is one more inspiration God uses for why he's going to restore Israel and punish the enemies of Israel. The Lord declares those who rule over Israel, howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all the day long, and therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking, here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who announce peace and bring good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices and shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. There's the promise of restoration yet again. Break forth, shout joyfully, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his mighty arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Chapter 54. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, and spare not. Lengthen your cords. And strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. You see how those two ideas are completely connected? Separated by one thing. What's the one thing that separates those two synonymous statements? The appearance of the Messiah. The accomplishment of the death of the Messiah the prediction of the raising of Messiah, and therefore the promise, shout for joy, O barren one, which is Zion, which is Jerusalem. Now all of that language in the first couple verses about shout for joy, you that have no child, break forth, cry aloud, you who have not travailed for the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous. Expand your tents, expand your land, get stronger tent pegs. Because I'm going to expand you. I'm going to expand your families. I'm going to expand the number of people that are coming to be part of you. That is all the language of glorious future and expansion. And that's why all the way back at the Abrahamic covenant, God promised them more land than they've ever occupied. But Isaiah here says there's going to be this huge enlargement of Israel. So enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings and spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the Gentile nations, the Goyim. And they will resettle the desolate cities. Those are the desolate cities of Jerusalem, the desolate cities of Judah, the desolate cities of the land that God has promised them in perpetuity. Because they've been out of their land, because their land was reoccupied initially by Assyrians who sent various different people groups into the northern area, who then intermarried, intermingled with the remnants of the ten tribes in the north. 
those mixed breed people became known as Samaritans. That's why the story that Jesus told of the good Samaritan was so shocking to his audience that he would speak so well of a people group that the Jews all hated. And so their land has been laying desolate. And here's the promise. Get ready. Not only are you going to be huge in people, but you're going to resettle all those desolate cities. Why? Because God gave it to them in perpetuity way back in the Abrahamic covenant. It's theirs. Nobody else gets it. Do you remember when, when God brought Israel out of Egypt? Remember? Were you there? Do you remember when that happened? When God brought Israel out of Egypt, it was after 400 years. Why did he leave his people there in Egypt for 400 years? Not only so that they could grow into a large and mighty nation, but when Abraham asked, how am I going to know that you're going to give me this land? God answered his question by putting him to sleep and making the Abrahamic covenant and saying, you're going to die. You're going to go to your fathers. But your descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known and they're going to serve there for 400 years. And then they're going to come back and they're going to occupy this very land where you're standing right now. But the iniquity of the Amorites is not quite full yet. I'm going to give them 400 more years so that they're really, really guilty. And then I'm going to bring my people in to wipe them out because they're occupying land I've promised to you. Mm -hmm. Same deal. The same promise that you're going to come back and you're going to occupy nations. You're going to come back and you're going to expand your tents. You're going to come back and possess and resettle the desolate cities of Israel. Why? Because it's your land. And then verse 4 says, Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. God is going to draw uh, an equation here between what's happened to Israel and a woman who's actually been put out of the house. That was a shameful act if you were a woman who had had a husband previously and then you didn't have a husband. It was very hard to have community. It was difficult to have an income. It was even hard to eat consistently. That was part of what a husband did, was provide for his wife. But if something about her had displeased her husband, he'd put her out of the house. And then that was a shame to her because everybody knew that she displeased her husband. Okay, well, that's the situation that Israel finds themselves in, which is why God had to say to them, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? I've put you out of your land, but I've yet to divorce you. I'm not completely done with you. He picks that language up again in verse 4 and says, Fear not, you will not be put to shame. Neither will you feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Okay, this is the same God who says things like, I'm going to cast your sin behind my back so that it's never brought up again. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far I'm going to cast your sin away. And in fact, when it comes to your sin, I'm going to remember it no more. So once he doesn't remember the sin of Israel anymore, he promises them, the reproach that I put on you now, the way that I drove you out of your land now, 
the way that you're being put to shame now and you're acting in servitude to Gentile nations, that's not the way it's always going to be. I'm going to be husband to you yet again, so don't be afraid because you're not going to be put to shame. You're not going to be humiliated. You're not going to be disgraced, and you will forget the shame of your youth. Yes, in your early days and your rebellion, yes, I put you out of your land. Yes, you were undergoing being put out of the house. But notice what he says in verse 5. He's going to take them back because your husband is your maker. What a wonderful phrase. I made you. I created you. And I made you for this purpose. I created you for this purpose. You are part of the plan of my glorification of myself. That's why I've done all this to you. That's why I chose you as a people group. That's why Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Jacob, those are my people. Those are the specific people who got the prophets. Those are the specific people who got the law. Those are the particular people who God revealed himself to and then made sure that they were nothing but guilty, 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 and then showed them how guilty they actually were so that he could say, and now by my grace and my everlasting kindness, I'm going to restore you. Why? Because your husband is your maker. What a great promise. <laughs> I would love to hear God say, I won't ever give up on you because I made you for me. That's the promise Israel has. How, when you read something like that, how do you come to the conclusion God's done with Israel? For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Several times in the book of Isaiah, God gives himself that proper name, the Holy One of Israel, and then says, I'm your Redeemer. Your Redeemer, the one who's going to restore you, the one who is making promises to you, the one who knows where you are and how you got there, the one who is your husband and is your maker is also the Holy God of Israel. How will the Holy One of Israel give up on Israel? No chance. There's no chance. Especially when he says, I'm your husband, I'm your maker. And then adds... Lord of hosts, that, that name, that proper name, Yahweh Sabaoth, means I'm in control of the armies of heaven and all the inhabitants of the earth. I'm in charge of everybody. And he includes that name in this promise in order to say, I'm the sovereign. I can do whatever I want with everybody. And I'm promising you restoration because... I'm your Redeemer. I'm the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. That's just God pretty much strutting. God just saying, who am I? And what can I do if I want to? David answers that question. Our Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. 
And he's just told you right here what he's pleased to do. Restore Israel. And then humans, silly little balls of dust, humans create theologies and say, no. <laughs> Even though it says that, no. Because that's, that's just Isaiah. No, it's not. It's also Jeremiah. That's why the promise is in Jeremiah 31. That's why the promise is in Jeremiah 33. It's also all the prophets of Israel. There's not a one of them that doesn't promise the restoration of Israel. Every single one. They speak with a single voice. And then you get to the New Testament, you read the kind of stuff we just read. That prophesying by the Spirit, the high priest said that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And then Jesus walks around on the planet declaring that there's going to be restoration for the 12 tribes. It's exactly what we said. Romans 9 to 11 is all about God's restoration of Israel. And then always remember, Paul tells us this specifically, that Peter, John, and James were specifically apostles to the uncircumcision. When you read Peter, it's very, very Jewish writing. Read the book of James, very, very Jewish writing. John, very Jewish writing. The book of Revelation is chock full, not only of references to Old Testament Jewish scripture, but he also uses all these symbols and all these ideas, these these theological concepts that all harken back to Israel. You can't understand the book of Revelation if you don't understand Israel. And it culminates in New Jerusalem and the gates that have the names of the 12 tribes. And yet, you can get on the internet right now. Don't. But you can get on the internet right now and you can find somebody saying, yeah, God's done with Israel. It's all about the church now. The church is the apple of his eye. Once the church got here, we're the know-all and the end-all. God's just dealing with us. It's not what it says here. And it's not what it says anywhere in the Bible. Not once, not anywhere. It's never said. Nowhere will you see that the church is the new Israel or the spiritual Israel. It just doesn't exist. All right, I'm beating a dead horse again, aren't I? Your husband is your maker. Verse 6, for Yahweh has called you like a wife forsaken. Now we know who the husband is. Now we know who the wife is. Israel is the wife. God himself is the husband. He is the redeemer. He is the holy one of Israel. He is called the God of all the earth. He can do whatever he wants. And the Lord has called you. Now, when we get into Paul's use of God's calling in the book of Romans, we see things like all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called. The calling of God is a very big part of Paul's theology. Where did he get that? Well, from right here, from God himself saying, I'm the Lord of all the earth. I'm the one who can do whatever I want with anybody I want because I am the Lord over all the armies of heaven, all the inhabitants of the earth, and I'm Yahweh, the Lord, who have called you like a wife from one's youth who is rejected. So yes, I've put you out, but where's the bill of your mother's divorcement? And I'm calling you to bring you back. 
And how is he accomplishing that calling? Well, that's Isaiah 53. That's why Isaiah 53 is where it is. Because it's so important, it is the solution to the how God is going to do this. God is going to accomplish the promises that he made all the way back to Abraham through Christ, but the promises don't change. The Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit. That's how you were. Even like a wife from one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I forsook you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. People love to read the first half of that statement. For a brief moment, I forsook you. The same way as Jeremiah. The promise to Jeremiah is that he's going to prophesy against Israel to tear them down. And people read that all the time and say, see, God tore Israel down. And then the rest of the sentence is, and to plant and to build. And people don't read that part. They just stop at the, oh, yeah, God's done with Israel. For a brief moment, I forsook you. People go, yeah, see, God forsook Israel. See, it says it right there. God himself said that he forsook Israel. But God says it was only for a moment. Because the rest of the sentence is, but with my great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you. I keep making reference to Jeremiah 31 and the promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31.3 says, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. God keeps declaring that it is his loving kindness, his everlasting love that is the reason that he calls people to himself. But the first people that he made that promise to was Israel. So yes, it may be because of the everlasting loving kindness of God that he called you. And that's great and that's wonderful and that's astounding grace. But then you can't say because he called me out of his grace and kindness, he negated Israel. Because that everlasting love and kindness from God is first promised to Israel. His wife. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you. Jeremiah 31.3, I'm going to quote it correctly because it just popped into my head how it really goes. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. And he says that to Israel and follows it with the promise of a new covenant to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So when God says, when the eternal one, when the everlasting one speaks of eternality and everlastingness, does he know what he's talking about? Absolutely. Yes. When he declares everlasting love to somebody, do we feel pretty good like he knows what he's talking about? Yes. When he declares that he has everlasting love and therefore with loving kindness drew a people, is there any possibility he's going to fail to draw those people? Because no. if you say he failed on Israel, then he's going to fail on you. Because that's the same God. Because of his loving kindness 
He's going to have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. He adds that again. He keeps saying, I'm the God of Israel and I'm your Redeemer. Because I'm your maker. Because I'm your husband. And then he explains it, verse 9, for this is like the days of Noah to me. Then he tells you what he means by it. When I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you again. Okay, uh, anybody seen a rainbow lately? It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. God made a promise to Noah. Said, I'm going to put my rainbow in the sky as a reminder to me that I'm never going to flood the earth again. And God, remembering that he did that, says, okay, Israel, I've punished you. But this is going to be very much like that time when I was talking to Noah, and I put my rainbow in the sky, and I said to him, this is a promise from me and a reminder to me that I'm never going to flood the earth again. It's like that. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. If you've ever walked outside and seen a rainbow, the promise here is just as good because God based it on the rainbow. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may quake. This is all part of God saying, I don't change. The mountains may be removed, the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. That word right there, by the way, that is translated antimony, if you look at 1 Chronicles 29.2, do it later. I'm trying to wrap up here. But you'll see that in building David's temple, David's house, and then Solomon's temple, it's described by that same word. And what it means is to paint. The original word, pook, simply means to paint, and oftentimes with bright colors. It means to clean the stones up to make them look shiny and paint them in bright, colorful ways. And so here is God saying, you afflicted one, you storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I'm going to set your stones in bright colors. And the foundations I will lay in sapphires. If this starts to sound familiar to you, it's Revelation 21. You go over there and you read about the new Jerusalem, which is inlaid with all kinds of jewels. Your gates are going to be like crystals. Moreover, I'll make your battlements like rubies. And your entire wall will be of precious stones. And all your sons will be taught of the Lord. And the well-being of your sons will be great. That phrase, I will make sure that all your sons will be taught of the Lord. God guarantees that in the new covenant. Again, Jeremiah 31. In the promise of the new covenant, that's repeated in Hebrews 8. It says that no man is going to have to teach his neighbor or his brother and say, know the Lord because they are all going to know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
The least of who to the greatest of who? Well, it's a promise made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Therefore, everybody within the house of Judah, from the least to the greatest, every single one of them, no one's going to have to teach his neighbor or teach his brother and say, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me. From the least to the greatest, Isaiah says the exact same thing. All your sons will be taught in the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness, you're going to be established. Okay, so here's the contrast that I was trying to create at the beginning of tonight. Look at the big plan of God. He creates humans. And then he gives them everything necessary to guarantee that they fall. So that, again, he's in the enterprise of glorifying himself. So that he gets all the glory. It's all being done to the great glory of his grace. And then he chooses a people of all the people groups on the planet. And then he gives them the law that will hold them guilty. And as we saw just this past Sunday, those things were a shadow. And Christ is the substance that casts that shadow. Christ comes and satisfies all the promises of God. In fact, Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. That phrase, that Hebraism, the law and the prophets, is the Old Testament. The law and the prophets was a common nickname used for the whole of the Old Testament. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Naturally, they would think that's what he's coming and doing. He's eating corn on the Sabbath, picking corn and cleaning it on the Sabbath. He's healing on the Sabbath. He doesn't seem to be keeping the law. He's the one who instructs them. The man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the man. He's the one that is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so they naturally, the Pharisees, the legalists, would start saying, well, then you're destroying Moses. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it. Now, if he's come to fulfill the prophets, and we've already seen that he has fully fulfilled Isaiah 53. So there's all these prophecies that all point to him. He is the substance that casts that shadow, which is why walking on the road to Emmaus with his couple of disciples who didn't understand what had just happened and said, the women have told us something that's just amazed us, told us that the tomb of our Lord, we, we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And he died, and now they're telling us the tomb is empty. And, we're, and so he says, oh, fools, slow of heart to believe Everything the prophets have spoken. That's what he accuses them of, not paying attention to what the prophets say. And then starting at the law and the prophets, he preached to them everything concerning him because he's the substance that casts the shadow. He was fulfilling what the prophets have said. Is it too fine a point to say, that's why the structure of Isaiah is the way it is. And far too many people who preach the gospel in Isaiah and write books about the gospel in Isaiah, they make that beeline for Isaiah 53 and ignore the context. Because the context drives you back to Israel and the restoration of Israel and that the Messiah has come to fulfill the promises that God has made all the way back to the unconditional covenant made with Abraham. That's the story of the Bible. 
Have I made enough sweeping hand motions? <laughs> In righteousness, you, you rebels, are going to be established. How? Through Isaiah 53. Because the first part of Isaiah is you're guilty, guilty, guilty. The first part of Isaiah is you're going to be punished. The first part of Isaiah is God has put you away and cast you out of your land. But you've got all these promises that you're going to walk in righteousness and become established as a righteous, holy nation by the holy redeemer, husband, God, redeemer of Israel. And how? By Isaiah 53. By the coming of the Messiah and the accomplishment of that work. In righteousness, you shall be established and you will be far from oppression for you will not fear. And you'll be far from terror, for it won't come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. In other words, God says, previously, you remember that Assyrian captivity thing? You remember that Babylonian captivity thing? That was all me. I did all that. And we've seen Isaiah say that repeatedly, both about Babylon and about and about Assyria. God takes credit for it and says, I use those Gentile nations to punish you, Israel, my people. And then I punish the Gentile nations for the haughtiness of heart with which they punish my people because I'm just that sovereign. But if anyone assails you, that's not going to be my plan because whoever assails you is going to fall because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire on the coals that brings out a weapon from its work. And I have created the destroyer who ruins, and no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Mm -hmm. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. How plain is that? I mean, I really don't have to do a whole lot of exegetical work to get it to say what I want it to say. It says what it says. And for 20 years, I've been contending now that we just need to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with what the Bible says. One of the foundation principles of the Protestant Reformation was tota scriptura, all of scripture. And I've continued to contend that we have to be brave enough to say everything the Bible says, especially when it says it as plainly as this. We have to be brave enough to say everything the Bible says, regardless of where that places us. Somebody will say, well, then you're being dispensational. And, no, I'm just reading the Bible. And, you're not being fully reformed then. OK, I don't care. It's what the Bible says. And yet we have to be wise enough, circumspect enough, to not say what the Bible doesn't say. We have to say everything the Bible says, not say what the Bible doesn't say. And if we just hold to that standard, it's inescapable. God has made everlasting promises to Israel, and he's going to accomplish them through Christ. It's unavoidable. Chapter 55 then, like I said, starts with, 
the promise, whoever you are, even if you have no money, come without cost. Come, buy, eat, drink. And the promise is going to expand beyond just the borders of Israel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But as long as I have mentioned Jeremiah 31 so frequently tonight, turn there. Because not only have I quoted the beginning of it, not only have I quoted the middle of it, but I'd like to read the end of it. Because it's going to say the exact same thing. Actually, verse 32. Oh, dear. Verse 31. We're never getting out of here. Verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Because those are the same people that he made the old covenant with. It can only be qualitatively new if he makes it with the same people. Is that logical enough? He names them by name. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. Now we know exactly what people group we're talking about. Although I was a husband to them. Same language Isaiah uses. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel in those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. How does he do that? Because of Isaiah 53. Because of the suffering servant. Because our iniquities, Israel's iniquities, were put on him. Thus says the Lord, who gives, who gives sun for light by day, and he gives the fixed order of the moon and the stars by night. He's the one that stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. There's that name again. Lord of hosts, the Lord who does everything he wants to do. The one who's in control of the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. By the way, is the sun still giving light for day? Yes. Yeah. The fixed order of the moon and the stars at night, is that still happening? Yes. Yeah, waves still roaring? Yep. Yeah, that would all still be happening. Verse 36, if this fixed order, sun, moon, stars, waves, all that, if that ever departs before me, says the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from becoming a nation before me forever. Not becoming, from being a nation before me Forever, the eternal one speaking in eternal terms can make eternal promises and can also say, as long as there's sun, moon, and stars, as long as the waves are rolling, Israel's a nation before me. Well, that's a rock-solid promise right there. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured. Here, I'll give you a yardstick. Go out and see if you can measure the galaxies. Forget the heavens. Just go for the Milky Way. Just tell me how big the Milky Way is. Figure that out. If the heavens above can be measured, and if the foundations of the earth can be searched out below, which we know for certain they cannot be, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. How clear is that? So Isaiah says it, Jeremiah says it, all the prophets of Israel say it, they all speak with one voice. Jesus comes along and says, 
I've come to fulfill all that. He says to his disciples on the Emmaus Road, you fools and you slow of heart to believe everything that the prophets have spoken. I don't want to be called a fool by Jesus. I don't want to be told I'm slow of heart. Because he believed in a very literal sense everything the prophets had said. And we just read a whole bunch of what the prophets said tonight. Now, Isaiah's not done. And I know by now it's starting to feel like, okay, we get it. But Isaiah's not done. He's going to continue to promise this glorious future to come. And so we're going to continue to say that Israel has this glorious future to come because that's what the Bible says. Look, when it comes to the Bible, get in or get out. Believe it or stop pretending. Believe what it says or admit that you don't fear God and you're not really a Bible-believing Christian. And, and go do your life. There's plenty of sinning left to be done. Go do that because you clearly don't believe what the Word of God says. Get in or get out. And I think at this very moment in time, God has shaken the church. The same God who put the tree in the garden, the same God who put the law in front of Israel, the same God that blinded the Jewish leaders so that they would kill the Prince of Life, the same God who has made glorious promises of the new Jerusalem to come. It's the same God who is shaking out his church right now. Get in or get out. Questions? I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Is there anything vague about what we read tonight? No. Is there anything that you could pose a question and say, well, I didn't quite get the, that word antimony threw me off. There's just nothing in it that's vague in the least. And when you see the big story of the Bible, couldn't be more plain. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God. <laughs>